Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Today on the pod... Fighting to the end, Brenda Locke joins us saying Surrey taxpayers face a large property tax increase if the province approves the Municipal Police Service. Plus, panic and uncertainty while the latest as Canadians remain stranded in Mexico as cartel violence escalates. And corporate hell, we look at the enormous cost of unnecessary meetings. That's all next on the Jazz Duhall Show podcast. Let's begin the show and focus on the Canadian tourists uh, in Mexico. Now, authorities say tourists remain barricaded in their hotel today amid violence uh, in the streets after the arrest of a major alleged drug cartel leader. Several cities in the Mexican state of Sinaloa exploded into violence yesterday after the arrest of alleged uh, drug trafficker Ovidio the Mouse Guzman, who is the son of former cartel boss El Chapo Guzman. And the violence was particularly fierce in places like Mazatlan. Some stranded travelers uh, who had checked out of the rooms but whose flights were cancelled uh, slept in hotel lobbies, the gates of which remained barricaded. Uh, military and police vehicles traveled up and down beaches that had been recently full of sun tanning vacationers. For the latest, let's go to Mazatlan. Joining me now is Vancouverite Dominique Carol Mirage. She lives in Mazatlan for part of the year. Dominique, thank you for joining us today. Good to be here. Uh, what's the scene like today in Mazatlan? What are you seeing? What are you hearing? I am hearing a peaceful beach. There's a bunch of people out in the pool. Everything is pretty calm. And, uh, yeah, everything's great. Everyone's enjoying themselves. Uh, you've certainly heard about the situation in regards what in regards to what's transpired. Um, when you're out and about on the street or have been, I, I don't know, first of all, have you been out on the street much? Well, so yesterday when, uh, when we started our date, we, I actually did not know what was going on. So we went out on the streets and I noticed it was a little quieter uh, in terms of traffic, but not something to alarm me. So I was out and about and everything was fine. However, as the news started to spread, um, I'd actually gone to the horse ranch and once I was done there, came back out into the roads. By that point, everything had quietened down quite significantly. And that was about the time when, you know, the the police uh, had already started to patrol and say, you know, we recommend everyone get, you know, off public areas and we suggest everyone go home. It wasn't so much of a panic. It was just more of Okay, guys, it's time to kind of get indoors and let's let's be vigilant. Hmm. So uh, today uh, the streets are fine and everyone's driving around again. Mm-hmm. And then did they, did they tell you why uh, they recommended you stay at home? Oh, one thousand percent. That news hit right away, and um, you know everyone was aware of what was going on. A lot of the news reports started to come in as to what was going on in a neighboring city, which is approximately two and a half hours away, called Kuriakan. And that's actually where everything was happening. So we were seeing those reports, for those people watching TV, they, they, those reports were 
very easily available. It was all over the news. Mm -hmm. So you were seeing some of those images uh, locally there in Mazatlan regards to some of the the violence and some of the, the vandalism. We were seeing those images from Culiacan. Nothing was happening in Mazatlan itself. As mm-hmm. far as Mazatlan goes, what they had done was they set up blockades uh, that lead towards those cities. So th- where the major highway starts heading towards Culiacan, Tepic, Durango, that's where you would see a blockade set up because obviously they don't want anyone heading out in that direction, uh, especially if they for some reason, don't know what's going on, and they find themselves in the you know wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 entire issue in and around cartels. Uh, did you do you see uh, sort of the, those folks doing their business, or have you had any concern about your safety, uh, about the drug trade in the times that you are there? Because you're there as a snowbird, you're there for quite a long time uh, for, for the year. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? Absolutely not. Now, when I, I, having lived half of my life in uh, BC and living in many of the different suburbs, I can't say it's any different from going to downtown Vancouver or anywhere else. Uh, you have to always be careful and you have to always be vigilant. But if you're talking about drug cartel and safety, absolutely not. This is one of the major reasons when we researched where in the world we'd like to live besides BC, we picked Mazatlan specifically because it's a very safe area and uh, we feel very well taken care of. I have a two-year-old, a four-year-old, and an eight-year-old. And uh, parts of the year, I'm here by myself with the kids. And I would go as far to, as to say that sometimes I feel safer here traveling on the streets because there is always uh, authority presence you have people to reach out to and people here are very protected there's a large canadian and american community here so mazatlan is a hub for that and i believe that people choose it specifically because it's very safe mm-hmm. uh, in regards to the airport itself do you have any news or have you heard anything new about the mazatlan airport if it is going to be opening when it might be opening so uh, it has already opened and there are local flights that are already taking off and landing at the airport. Uh, I actually run a Facebook group, um, a Mazatlan expats Facebook group. So this consists of people who are either they're in somewhere in North America or anywhere actually, but mostly in North America looking to fly in and then people here looking to fly out. So we were keeping a very close tab on what was going on. Yesterday it was announced the airports had shut down. They were supposed to open at 8 p.m. At 8 p.m. they sent another message out saying, nope, we're going to still stay shut till tomorrow morning. This morning they said, we're having a meeting at 10 a.m. We're going to announce shortly what's going on. And then they said, airports open, good to go, highways open. People have been flying out of the airport, but not international flights, just within the country. And I think they're planning on opening up the international ones shortly. But I don't believe, as of right now, that's the case. Do you think that it'll be today or better chance tomorrow for the international flights? Um, you know, they have to first deal with all of the flights that were canceled from yesterday. I think they're trying to get that under control. So I think more it's more of a logistical thing. And I feel like they would be good by tonight, actually. But, who's you know, we're, we're just all kind of... Um, 
keeping our years open. There's a local uh, uh, municipal organization known as CAPTA Mazatlan. They are specifically the ones responsible for sending notifications out uh, and taking care of tourist needs and visitors, expats needs. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we sort of wait for those notifications to come in and they're pretty good with their communication and they let us know what's going on. So we're just waiting for that right now. Uh, and, and have, have uh, Canadians that are still stranded there in Mazatlan, have they reached out to you via uh, via your Facebook or any other way uh, asking for help? Uh, yes, they have. I mean, we've had, <laughs> so Vancouver had those snowstorms around Christmas time, mm-hmm. and uh, we actually had more people stranded around then, and we personally knew a couple of people staying at the, the Ryu Resort. So we ha- saw more of an issue then because it was for days it was for several days christmas time and you know people can fly out the resort was full and they were uh, but they were still having people fly in so that was more of an issue at the present moment we're pretty good it's been a day's delay so we did have a few people just kind of asking more so as to what's going on and you know how they should deal with it and and uh you know just wanting updates but uh, apart from that, um, right now, Mazatlan's just gearing in for its busy season, so there's still quite a bit of uh, accommodation and, and hotel rooms available. So yes, it's definitely inconvenienced people's travel plans, but it's not been devastating in any way. Mm-hmm. Well, Dominique, thank you so much for your time. Uh, wish you all the best, and uh, hopefully that airport uh, for international travel opens up quickly so Canadians can get home and others can actually get to Mexico and enjoy the sun uh, as well. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. You have yourself a great day. We're speaking to Dominique Carol Mirage. She is a Vancouverite, but uh, spends quite a bit of time down in Mazatlan. We just spoke to her there. Uh, she uh, is, of course, a snowbird, but many tourists are down there as well from Canada. Uh, the airport, to our understanding at this point for international travel, uh, is still closed, but as Dominique said, it is has opened for local travel. Now, several cities in the Mexican state of Sinaloa exploded into violence yesterday after the arrest of alleged drug trafficker Ovidio Guzman, who's the son of former cartel boss Joaquin El Chapo uh, Guzman and of course we all know uh, Mexico is a very popular destination for uh, travelers and of course for snowbirds as well. Joining me now is Vancouverite Harry Chandler who also spends a part of the year in Mazatlan. Harry thank you for joining us today. Uh, You're welcome. What are you seeing and hearing today in Mazatlan? Where I'm located which is uh, just uh, very close to the uh, Centro Historico here very little Life is quite normal at the present time. Yesterday was, uh, people were a little concerned. I think the government put out a warning that people should stay home, which of course is an admission of a totally failed situation, but never mind. We complied, and uh, but we'd been out in the morning. I'm back home now. Are you hearing anything uh, out of the ordinary uh, amongst residents where you live uh, in regards to the situation? There have been a couple of trucks set fire to, I believe, on the highway. A friend of ours who's a keen cyclist showed us a clip this morning, showed us a picture of a, a burning truck. But apart from that, um, really very little. Uh, I, I'm curious, uh, how long have you lived uh, in that area? Well, we've been uh, in this particular place for 16 years. We used to come down for vacations, decided 16 years ago to, uh, to come and live here in Mazatlan. 
Mm-hmm. Generally, when you're there, uh, you felt safe, I'm going to assume? Oh, very safe. Never for one minute have I concerned myself or my wife either um, with with our personal safety and security. It's always been a, naturally you take certain precautions. You don't leave your car open in a, a bad neighborhood, but I wouldn't do that in Canada either. So, uh, so basically, just the normal precautions. You know, as long as you don't, as long as you accept that there are crimes of opportunity, i.e., theft and so forth, and you take just sensible precautions, no problem at all. Have you uh, had any any sort of sense in in your daily life of the drug trade and the cartels, uh, which I know we're all aware of uh, and that operate? Uh, but have you had any sort of interaction just in, in, in your daily life in regards to seeing some of this stuff? No, not at all. Um, and neither have most of the uh, Mexicans that we uh, we spend our time with here. You know, Mexico is is an interesting country. You know, I'm living in a particular strata of society here, just as you would in Canada. It's a very, very much a dichotomy here. You've got the... Uh, the middle class and up, I suppose. And then usually in more rural areas on the outskirts of the cities, you're going to see a lot of poor people. Obviously, I don't spend a lot of time in those areas. When we first started talking here, you had, I, I believe, expressed some concerns in regards to the shelter-in-place comments that the Canadian government had made to stay in your hotel, stay in your residence. Do you think that's the right um, thing to do? I suppose you should say here that, or I should say that uh, one should err on the side of caution. You know, we're quite uh, used to seeing um, military and police, heavily armed police and military vehicles going past our residence. Uh, We're on a sort of cliff road. Um, And, um, you know, these are large pickup trucks with machine guns mounted on the back. But I always think this is just a show of force, really, to mostly to impress the local people that, that security is our concern sort of thing. And uh, I've never seen them actually in action. So when I saw a little bit more activity yesterday morning on our way to coffee, a few more military vehicles around, that was all. A couple of helicopter flights coming by, military helicopters, and that was it. Are you hearing anything about whether or not the airport will be opening anytime soon so Canadians can get home? Well, you know, I heard this morning at coffee from somebody uh, uh, that it was supposed to open again this morning at 10 a.m. And I have no idea what the what the situation is right now. I hope it's okay. We're, we're heading back to Canada next Friday for personal for a personal matter. And, um, and we're hoping it's all going to be okay by then. Yeah, and, and I'm going to assume just because of where you are, the importance of the tourism industry to Mexico, the government, obviously the Mexican government, uh, whatever uh, challenges and uprising they have, they will be pushing back with enough force to make sure, um, uh, you know, that, they, that this situation at this point at least gets to a point where it's a lot safer and tourists can actually get out, in and out uh, of that community. Because I think Mazatlan, I'm sure, is very important to the Mexican economy, one would assume. Uh, well, I guess it's one of, one of the, uh, well, it's actually more of a minor uh, holiday resort, uh, although it's getting in, bigger and bigger. Um, sure, I'm sure they don't want to lose their, their tourist dollars. So they, they will do everything they can to calm everybody down. But uh, I, I don't understand why you would shut down an airport when you should just deploy military or police uh, personnel to secure the place. I, I don't know. 
<laughs> I really don't understand that. But I'm not sure what would happen in Canada either if you had some kind of a uh, Red Guards kind of thing happening or, a, you know, by, about a Meinhof gang situation. Well, Harry, uh, stay safe. Thank you so much for your time today. And uh, we're all hoping the airport will be opening up very, very soon. Uh, so you can get home next week as well. Thanks very much. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. talking about uh, uh, cancellation of flights when it comes to Sunwing and uh, those flights going into uh, uh, Mazatlan uh, because of the violence uh, in that area at this point. Of course, uh, there was other cancellation over the, over the holidays. Hundreds of people were stranded in Mexico uh, when Sunwing canceled flights. There's, of course, um, other flights that were discontinued in the prairies when it comes to Air Canada uh, and, of course, WestJet as well. The tr- weather uh, clearly did not help, uh, which, of course... Uh, speaks to travel chaos, but how do you as a passenger cope and, and what things can you look for and ask for as a passenger? What are your rights? At the same time, what do we need to collectively do as when it comes to government and government policy to make that travel experience a little bit better? Well, joining me now is Robert McDowell. He's the founder of Pivot Travel, which is an affiliate of Fair Connect. Robert, thank you for joining us today. Nice to be here, Jais. Uh, what your thoughts on this? You know, it, it's easy uh, when you when you open have an open line show. People call in; they're not happy because they are in a very stressed point of of of, of their life because they're at an airport. They're 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 stuck. Your sense of of what transpired over the last two or three weeks? What was? What are your thoughts? Well, I think it certainly precipitated based on the weather and the issues that we had, but it just showed what uh, shaky foundation the travel industry still has and how much work we still have to do mm-hmm. to ensure that we have the crews in place, the planes in place, the scheduling and, you know, all those sort of backups. And so in, in this case, like if you could wave your wand, uh, is it a case of more staff that's required at this particular point, uh, more planes? Uh, in the case of Vancouver, a little bit of snow falls, this whole city shuts down some, <laughs> in a lot of cases. Never mind planes, we can't even get home sometimes on the on, on the afternoon commute. Uh, what are the thing, two or three things you think that need to change to make that travel experience better for for Canadians? I mean, most airlines are using their planes constantly, and Sunwing, especially over the Christmas season, they're going to be using those planes 24 hours a day. So you talk about 48 hours delays, and that's probably about six rotations, so six different trips that they're behind. They can never get caught up on. So those six trips, 160, 170 people per trip, I mean, you know, we're talking about a sizable number, and that just kind of barrels along as as the system can't uh, respond to that, and it just gets worse and worse. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think the big problem over Christmas, we don't have the staffing that you might have over summer, and yet you have even greater demand in, in a smaller time period than we have over the summer months when the airlines hire more staff and have the seasonal employees that they need. They mm-hmm. don't have that in December and January. But even pre-COVID, we would see some of these uh, problems. Is it also a case of the industry, you know, everybody's trying to be as efficient as they possibly can. That means if you, let's just say, have six planes, you're going to keep them up in the air as, as much as possible. Uh, that that is safe. Uh, but if one plane goes down mechanically, 
there is just a domino effect in the entire system, particularly for smaller airlines or even charter airlines. Definitely. There's no question. And, you know, yeah, the, the, the perception that there might be planes sitting around not being used, mm-hmm. that, that should not be in people's minds at all. The airlines are using them as much as they can. And what it comes down to really is consumers want to pay a low price for getting from point A to point B, and, and they always will want to pay the lowest price. And that's kind of, kind of the problem here as well. Uh, so in this case, um, you know, we as Canadians accept a lot of this. Should there not be a penalty for some of, this, uh, some of these inconveniences, cancellations? Uh, people sometimes don't even get you know, uh, uh, tickets for hotels or whatever it may be, or a meal. It's almost become almost, it, the, the pain of traveling. We've all accepted it. Is this a case of government bringing in tougher legislation that, that provides that legislative stick to say, you know what, if you inconvenience people, yeah. if there's cancellations of two hours, eight hours, 12 hours, you have to reimburse 50% of the ticket, 100% of the ticket, whatever it may be, but that we need a more of a stick for these airlines to really improve a customer service. Definitely, there's no question. I mean, the, uh, we did bring in the uh, the government brought in the air passenger protection regulations. What what's called the APPR? That's mm-hmm. sort of a new regime where you can get money for any any issues of delays or cancellations. But there's a lot of requirements to that. What, the most important is whether it's within the airline's control or not. So if it's a safety issue, that's not in the airline's control, and you don't want the airlines to be to be flying a, an unsafe plane anyways. But the other big one is the weather. So the weather is not within the airline's control. No one wants a plane to be flying when it shouldn't be in no bad weather. So those two are going to be the sticking points to, to any sort of penalty regime that we come up with against the airlines. What about uh, mechanical? Would that be the airline's fault then? Or at least the, the it really depends. For that? That's a tricky one. That one and the crew shortage. It's those are both sort of trickier ones because, of course, the airlines should be maintaining their planes to a certain level, uh, so there shouldn't be a, a, a routine sort of mechanical issue. But um, the APPR is certainly working its way through kind of how to differentiate between a crew shortage, say, in in, in Fort St. John versus a crew shortage in Vancouver or Calgary, where they have crew base. I mean, they're both very very different. Uh, so how they work their way through that. The other issue is airlines itself. So these APPRs and the penalties, mm-hmm. they apply to Air Canada and WestJet. They do not apply to smaller airlines. So Sunwing is one of those, uh, Flare, um, uh, Lynx. These are the new upstarts. They're smaller. Mm-hmm. They're treated a bit more gently by the regulations. So consumers should be aware of that. I mean, that, that, that's, I guess, the, the, um, the balancing act there. You, you'll get a great price to go to, let's say, Vancouver to Calgary or Abbotsford to Calgary. But, uh, you know, they're probably going to ding you for, your, obviously, your luggage. But more importantly, if that plane has mechanical issues, you could be stuck for a very long time. And as you said, there aren't a lot of planes kicking around for some of these smaller airlines. And, and that's, that's, that's the challenge, that's right? right? Exactly. There's no question. Yeah. And, and you know, those $29 fares, they, they're increasing the baggage fees. They just increased them last week. They're increasing the carry-on baggage fees. They're increasing fees. They're putting Some of them are putting in fees for checking in in person. So you'd have to pay $10 if you do check in and you don't check in online. So, yeah, you really have to read the small print when you're getting that $29 fare to uh, Calgary for Do sure. you think it'll be easier, my final question, to easier to actually extract dollars from these companies in regards to their responsibility? If, if they're not responsible for mechanical or they may be responsible for a crew shortage, and they certainly aren't responsible for the weather or whatever uh, other issues may be there. There aren't. It, it, what you're telling me is they. It's hard for us as a, as consumers to extract any dollars out of them if there is well, a significant I, inc- I, inconvenience. 
you know, I think we could still arm ourselves on consumers and, and prepare ourselves so we could have the knowledge about the different airlines and what their on-time departure rates are but and their delay and cancellation rates. But we should also be, you know, looking at travel insurance a lot differently now. Certainly my, uh, my customers are really looking at travel insurance in a different way. Some mm-hmm. of the insurance offers automatic payment. So through Interac, if, if you register your flight, if it's delayed by two hours, boom, into your, into your bank account goes 80 bucks. And you don't have to do anything. You don't have to apply for anything. So these kind of packages are much more popular for consumers. Um, yeah, so you should really be thinking about whether you need to travel, but also whether you need to check a bag, because that gives you flexibility of catching whatever if you don't have to wait around for your bag. Um, tracking your bag, if it may get lost, you might know where it is. Um, but also travel insurance. Look at that a bit differently than we might have looked at it before, before the pandemic. Robert, thanks for your time today. Really appreciate it. Definitely. The mayor of Surrey has announced that if the city continues with the transition to a municipal police force, property taxes for families will increase dramatically. New Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke told Global News she believes property taxes will increase on average of about $1,200 per household if the city transitions to the Surrey Police Service. Mayor Brenda Locke joins me now. Uh, Your Worship, thank you for talking to us today. Thank you for having me on, Jeff. It's great to be here. Uh, Why did you uh, feel there was a need for you to send out a press release today uh, to talk about these particular costs or your belief that uh, there'll be a significant increase uh, in property taxes? Well, I think that it's important for the public to know. We are heading into our budget consultation time, and uh, this time the City of Surrey is going to be taking it out to the town centre, so we're hoping to have three or four locations where the public can come and talk to us. And I think it was important for the public to have the heads up that these are significant dollars, um, $235 million uh, over the next five years, the city of Surrey is uh, is significant, and so we needed to uh, make sure that the public knew, and I needed to make sure that the public know uh, the cost of this transition. Now, uh, Norm Lipinski, the Surrey Police Service uh, chief, was on this show uh, about a couple of weeks ago, and they did their own report. You, of course, are quoting from the city report, and basically what he says uh, that uh, they, first of all, don't buy the $235 million uh, uh, cost over five years. Uh, he believes it should be around $99 million. What do you say to their argument that uh, it's that the number isn't as high as you and the city are saying? Share the information. You know, um, I have asked, uh, I've asked Chief Lipinski for the information that he sent, uh, that he identified, that he sent to the uh, Solicitor General that would outline the human resource plan, the the expenses moving forward, and uh, they refused to do it. The Surrey Police Service refused to do it. They refused to give that information, by the way, to the Surrey Police Board as well. And so I guess... um, that has a, that leaves me very concerned. You know, this uh, local this was supposed to be driven on local accountability. This was supposed to de- deliver local control to residents, but instead, it turned out to be no control, no accountability. We do not know what is in that report. We do know, though. Uh, we have a team of almost 20 um, accountants, CPAs at the City of Surrey that have done their due diligence and uh, they have come up with a number that is $235 million. That was in a report provided to all of Council on December 8th 
And uh, so I will stand every day of the week with uh, Surrey, Surrey staff on this. But it's fair to say, let's just say, and I'll speculate aloud, that we, mm-hmm. these, uh, Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General, decides the RCMP will re- remain the force. Uh, there's no doubt, even if they did that, there are still unrecoverable sunk costs already there. Uh, according to the SPS, I think is. Uh, $107 million, there's um, uh, termination agreements, there's the IT challenges. There's still going to be a cost to the city, even if the RCMP is kept. Like You can't just uh, say, well, we'll just transfer all that over to the, to the uh, Surrey RCMP. There are unrecoverable sunk costs here. You're right about that, Jeff. There are, um, there are some costs, but the $235 million is the number that our staff gave us that said the Surrey Police Service moving forward over the next five years will cost 235 more than sticking with the RCMP. So this is an over and above amount, and that is a cost, or if that's broken down to percentage-wise, a one-time cost of 55%. Um, extraordinary, I know. And, and I understand why people are reacting badly to it. I react badly to it. But that is the reality of what we're looking at, and we have seen the numbers, and all of council has seen these numbers. Now, ultimately, this decision uh, sits with Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General. He'll probably consult, obviously, with uh, ministry staff, uh, perhaps his cabinet as well. But ultimately, the decision will come from the provincial government. If uh, uh, the minister decides on keeping the Surrey Police Service, will you accept that? You know, um, I ran... And I was elected, I ran very clearly on a platform to keep the RCMP as the police of jurisdiction in this city. I will do everything in my power to make sure that we keep the RCMP as a police of jurisdiction. But if the minister, the Solicitor General, if the Solicitor General um, from the province, the senior government says we're going to keep the Surrey Police Service because A, uh, we, we believe it's at the point of no return, and B, we may one day want a Metro Vancouver police force and having a municipal police force in Surrey gets us there. This is the reasoning for our decision. There's really nothing you can do about it. You know, I think it's a couple of points to that. And, and you know, I don't think anybody, we are going into very fragile economic times. I don't think any government, whether it's a provincial government, uh, certainly not municipal government, or the federal government wants to see these kind of tax burdens put on, on residents. Um, but I will, I will always say that I will do everything in my power to ensure that in the city of Surrey, we maintain the RCMP as the police of jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that there is um, always, uh, you know, there's, there's always going to be review. And I think thinking about what the minister will or will not do is hypothetical. Mm-hmm. So I won't go... I can't go there right now, but I certainly will tell you that from my perspective, there is absolutely no um, good reason. And if somebody could get me to why, I would be interested in hearing that. But I haven't heard one good reason why we were doing this, doing this, and and at what cost. Uh, the cost is uh, is becoming extraordinary. I also want to tell you that 235 million is a very conservative number. That is based on only 734 members. Mm-hmm. And if you do cross-reference to what uh, Vancouver has, you can see that's almost double the uh, amount that Vancouver has as a, a police complement. Now, as you said, you ran on 
uh, keeping the Surrey RCMP. But I'm going to go back to my original point. If the minister decides it's a senior level of government, this is the way we're going. You know, when you look at just legislation, there's not much, if anything, a municipality can do when it comes to a senior level of government making that decision. If that is the case, you ran on opposing them. What will your vision be for the city? Because if you got elected, one would argue, and as you said, wanting to keep the RCMP. Let's take that off the table. What does Brenda Locke, the mayor, focus on if three SPS is kept? What is your focus going to be? Are you going to focus on crime? Are you going to focus on development? Because I'm trying to understand who Brenda Locke, the mayor, will be when the main issue she ran on is taken off the table. You know, I think uh, we're going to have to... um I think you're asking me a hypothetical, which is difficult <laughs> to, uh, a very difficult one for me to, to entertain. But it's also about I, what your vision is yeah. going to be, because if that, it, it, like I said, a senior level of government decides we're going with SPS, uh, that's taken off the table now. And the question is going to be, what does a Brenda Locke administration look like and what are you going to fight for? Well, let me tell you what keeps me up at night, Jeff. Mm-hmm. What keeps me up at night is thinking about um, mom, dad, and three kids in a townhouse with an $800,000 mortgage and where are they going to find an additional 1000 or $1,200 um, a year. So my um, choices are going to become very limited. And I, think, um, and I think to be very fair about it, I think both the minister and the premier have been very clear about talking about uh, economic realities right now. We know we are in sensitive um, economic times. I... I um, I don't expect that any government will will want to put this kind of tax burden mm-hmm. on residents of any city at any time. Well, if you're asking me if I'm a one-trick pony, uh, <laughs> no, no, I'm not. Oh, there are uh, lots uh, of things. Yeah. <laughs> there are lots of tricks, Jeff. I, I know. Uh, <laughs> look, I'm not. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I wasn't saying that, but I know what you ran on and what you got elected on, yeah. or my view of it. Uh, and uh, that's taken off the table. So I want to get a sense of. And I know it's early days. Uh, still, you've, mm-hmm. you, it's October fifteenth was the election. I'm just curious as to where that focus may be. But you know, you have lots before you in regards to crime, in regards to development, uh, in regards to many other issues that mayors deal with. But I just wanted to ask you that question. And I appreciate you being on today. And we will chat once again. Uh, in the near future, I'm sure. As always, thank you so much for your time today. I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks, All right. Jeff. Take Bye care. Now. Let's update you on that political circus that, well, is America. Republican leader Kevin McCarthy flipped 15 colleagues to support him in dramatic votes for House Speaker today, making extraordinary gains on the fourth day, yes, the fourth day, and the 12th and 13th ballots of a grueling standoff that was testing uh, American democracy and the Republicans' ability to govern. Now, the change votes from conservative holdouts, including the chairman of the chamber's Freedom Caucus, put McCarthy closer to seizing the gavel for the new Congress, but not yet Abel. Joining us now for the latest is Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Walk me through what you're seeing and hearing uh, today with with this vote. So look, at the beginning of the day, Kevin McCarthy walked into uh, the House uh, defiant once again, saying that he was going to be able to walk away uh, a winner. And while he has not walked away a winner yet, he did manage to pull off uh, a few surprises and over the course of the day flipped 
15 people who were voting against him just yesterday to vote for him. And what did that do? For the first time, it gave Kevin McCarthy more votes than Democrat Hakeem Jeffries, but not enough to get 218. In the final round of voting before they adjourned for the day, Kevin McCarthy sat with 214. And what's important about that? Two Republicans were missing because they had to go home for personal reasons. They are now coming back late night Friday DC time when they intend to reopen the votes and there's a chance that Kevin McCarthy potentially by the end of the night could become speaker. Uh, when you say uh, late tonight, we're not we're not talking about after the end of this show, which ends at 6 p.m. Pacific. It'll be even later than that. Yeah, uh, it's 10 o'clock D.C. time when they are going to reopen this vote. Uh, they held the, the vote to adjourn uh, just after 3.30 D.C. time. And again, it's to potentially allow for those two Republicans to come back. But also, this time off is going to give Kevin McCarthy's allies in the House a bit of a chance to try and make some wheelings and dealings, some last-minute deals here to try and pull over because there are still six holdouts, including Florida Representative Matt Gates and Colorado Representative uh, Lauren Boebert, some of them have said that they are going to vote never Kevin, but there could potentially be a couple that could be uh, persuaded. And if that happens, that could be enough to give Kevin McCarthy his victory. Uh, what does this mean for Mr. McCarthy's tenure? If you were to get the magic number and and uh, flip those votes, uh, he clearly goes into this position in a very weakened position, does he not? Well, I mean, he says that he's not going to be a weak speaker, but there are some concerns from within the moderates of the Republican Party that he has given too much power to the very few on uh, on the far right. And some of that is starting to come to light here. We're hearing that some of the uh, concessions that were made have to do with uh, budgets and appropriations and, more importantly, government funding bills uh, in that they are not going to just create this kind of blank check when it comes to the debt ceiling and how much the United States can borrow and increase its debt levels. And if that's the case, that really sets up a fight here. And we've seen what just a few holdouts can do, especially from the far right, who are really fiscally conservative in the states. Uh, this could potentially put, put, put questions over how the U.S. is going to deal with funding later on this year. Uh, and that is going to come back to fall on Kevin McCarthy for potentially having given up so much power. Mm -hmm. and, and you raise a very good point there that he'll also, even if he does um, get the enough, enough votes, he'll be constantly under threat of being voted out as well. He, sh he will be, uh, because uh, a red line for Kevin McCarthy was this motion to vacate, which uh, originally was five people coming to the floor with this motion uh, to, to essentially call a no-confidence vote into the Speaker. That's going to be whittled down to one, and what's more interesting about this, Jazz, is that it's not just one GOP member that can bring this. A, a Democrat could come to the floor as a singular and put a vote up to uh, to get rid of the speaker and put a new person in power. And Kevin McCarthy earlier in the day said, look, if that happens, if a Democrat does it, the Republicans are going to rally together uh, and ensure that that is defeated. But it's unclear if that's going to happen, because, look, once the rules package is out there, once everything has been set, the concessions have been made and things are in stone, what's to stop Republicans from now turning their back on Kevin McCarthy and saying, we got what we want, we can now get rid of you. There's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of eggshells that are going to be on the ground for the next couple of months. In regard to American democracy, uh, its ability for its government to get things done for its people, I mean, this has got not only be a concern for Americans, but also just uh, for Canadians and other nations as well. 
who look uh, to uh, some of these policies that can have a dramatic impact uh, on our country, especially when it comes to the economy. For sure, uh, and, and and especially when it comes to uh, to the budget, and especially when it comes to uh, government funding, because if the Republicans find themselves fighting internally about allowing the United States to borrow more money, and uh, you know ultimately allows the United States to default on its debts, that is not just going to create um, a catastrophic financial situation in the U.S. with with empl- uh, unemployment numbers skyrocketing. Uh, that will have a global impact. Every single country will feel the impacts of the United States default on its own debts. There are also going to be uh, potential issues when it comes to border security or, 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 or other health care issues in the United States that could have impacts uh, that reverberate outside of the borders should Republicans move forward with the legislation that they want to. I will point out, though, Jazz, mm-hmm. there have been some uh, rumblings that some moderate Republicans may try to lean on Democrats over the course of the next two years if they find that things are a little too extremely leaning to the right. Maybe a bit of power sharing. We'll have to see what happens here. But this could this could be the Republicans not only fighting with themselves, but themselves joining with Democrats and fighting other Republicans. Wow. Uh, this, of course, is all occurring on the second anniversary of the Capitol Hill attack. I guess that sort of that memory also um, is is being discussed. What transpired uh, on that uh, on to, that, that that transpired today, two years ago, as this vote is going on as well. I mean, it's to be a broader conversation on the state and health of democracy in America. For sure. Uh, I mean, look, two years ago, uh, the Capitol was attacked and business was ground to a halt uh, and, and blame was placed on Republicans. And, and once again, on January 6th, the blame being placed on Republicans for the fact that the House has ground to a halt and work is not being done. I don't think that that's lost uh, on anybody, especially those lawmakers who were were hiding inside the Capitol two years ago uh, from uh, from that riot. Uh, you know, on the steps of the Capitol this morning, Democrats held a very small uh, ceremony, a couple of Republicans there at the White House, the president. Uh, made a point of how fragile democracy can be while he was handing out uh, civilian medals to election workers and to uh, Capitol Police officers, Metro Police officers, and former secretaries uh, of state uh, that that found themselves uh, under attack from both Republicans and the former president. Uh, This is a day that, you know, lawmakers, this country is not going to soon forget, but they also are trying to work to ensure that even in the eyes of the public, democracy might be crumbling before them, that they are working to try and secure that foundation. So, uh, in closing, we will have another vote at about 7 p.m. Pacific, local time here in British Columbia, and we may actually find some sort of resolution to this very issue at this point. Uh, we will finally see, potentially see a speaker, and then, of course, the tough part begins, which is actually governing. Absolutely. The tough part is going to be governing. The tough part is now going to be getting to the finish line because the finish line is going to be mending that very visible rift that has formed between uh, this Republican Party. And that's not going to simply go away with Kevin McCarthy now as speaker. If he has given a lot of power to the right, to the far right, there are going to be fights within the moderate parts in the middle. Reggie, thank you for your time today. Thank you. British Columbia is boosting funding for the Human Rights Tribunal and Community Legal Assistance Society by as much as $4.5 million per year. Uh, The province said in a statement earlier this week that the number of cases brought to the tribunal 
uh, has, in, has well, essentially doubled uh, from 1,460 in 2019 to 3,192 in 2022. It said the new funding will go towards helping the tribunal tackle its increased caseload and allow the legal society to hire more lawyers, legal advocates, and support staff. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the, the boost in funding for the Human Rights Tribunal is Jeff Mason. He's an employment and human rights lawyer at Miller Thompson LLP. Good afternoon, Jeff. Good afternoon, Jazz. So walk me through this. Uh, for, for our audience listening, what does the Human Rights Tribunal uh, and the Legal Assistance Society specifically do in regards to uh, people's needs? So the, the Human Rights Tribunal, uh, it's, it's an administrative tribunal set up basically to, to adjudicate, adjudicate claims made under the D.C. Human Rights Code. So any complaint of discrimination uh, uh, that's made out in D.C., uh, usually makes its way to uh, to the BC Human Rights Tribunal. Um, uh, class, uh, their their role basically is to uh, try to help provide um, pro bono assistance and legal services to uh, to complainants, including uh, individuals going through the the tribunal's processes. Why do we need a human rights tribunal? We have a, a, a criminal code. We have a charter of rights. We have a, a a, a court system. Why do we need a human rights tribunal? You know, it's it's a good question. I mean, the I think the main case for why you have a human rights tribunal in the first place is because the types of claims that you see uh, made out under the the human rights code are, are really specialized claims. They're they require sort of a, a specialized level of knowledge for adjudicators to to see and decide these cases. Um, there's also sort of a, a different mandate that you see through the tribunal than than through court. So, the the part of the mandate under the Human Rights Code is to to be educational, to not um, to not necessarily penalize people who unwittingly discriminate against others, but to you know, nonetheless still still remedy those. So these these administrative tribunals, like the Human Rights Tribunal, are really set up to be sort of specialized bodies. Um, to just to just deal with a specialized set of complaints. The idea too is that when you have a specialized body like that, it, it can allow those complaints to be uh, to be heard more efficiently. Which, obviously, as, as we're seeing, is, is not always the case. Um, why has it gotten so bad uh, for the tribunal itself uh, in regards to just the, the the amount of cases that have grown? And like I said, it's doubled from 2019 to 2022. Is it just about the dollars or is it a case of people um, believing that they have a case that they, they feel that uh, they need to use the, uh, the, the, tri- the tribunal? Yeah, so this is certainly something that I don't think has one single uh, cause or, or explanation. Um, there's a number of different factors at play here. You know, a lot of people have pointed to an, an increased awareness of the Human Rights Tribunal and, and discrimination generally. I think there's some truth to that. You know, I, I don't think that you can ignore the correlation between the reintroduction of the, the BC Human Rights Commission in 2019 whose mandate is in part to to help educate individuals and organizations on the Human Rights Code and the Human Rights Tribunal. Um, certainly that, that's, you know, at play here, but I don't think you can also ignore some of the other significant developments over the last couple of years. I think, you know, as we've talked about a lot in the past, um, through COVID, uh, you know, traditional employment norms have been challenged left, right, and center. I think part and parcel with that might be um, employees being, uh, you know, 
perhaps more more comfortable with with bringing a complaint against their employers. Mm-hmm. I think the increase in layoffs and terminations that we saw through COVID is a factor. Uh, you can't forget, obviously, the the number of um, COVID restriction cases that were brought in front of the tribunal. Um, but the the increase from 2019 to 2022 that was about 120 percent increase. That was just the accepted complaints, and the vast majority of the COVID restriction complaints. Um, those were dismissed outright. So that, that wouldn't even include a lot of the COVID restriction ones. I think really the, the biggest factor here is, is mental health. Um, and whether that's you know, more an issue of increased mental health issues in part driven by COVID or a greater awareness of mental health issues, I, I think that's really the, the driving factor. Um, the strongest evidence from that actually comes from the Canadian Human Rights Commission and not, not the, the BC Human Rights Tribunal, but at the federal level, just to give you an example, in 2015, uh, I think 25% of the complaints in front of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal were discrimination complaints on the basis of mental disability. That number held steady up until 2020. 2020 it was about 29%. Mm-hmm. In 2021, that jumped to 52%, which is astronomical. So we saw over, you know, over half of the complaints in front of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal in 2021 were on the basis of mental disability. Now, that's, that's at the federal level, not the provincial level, but it's, it's telling, I think, because it helps paint a picture of what's happening across Canada. Um, so there, there's not one single answer, but I think, um, I think mental health is, is certainly a, a really big factor. Do most provinces have something similar to what BC has in regards to our Human Rights Tribunal? Yeah, so, so every jurisdiction in Canada, every province, um, territory, and at the federal level has, uh, has a Human Rights Tribunal. I believe BC was the, the only holdout to not have a BC Human Rights Commission, which is a a slightly different body um, uh, that, that, again, was reintroduced in 2019. But, um, yeah, you, you basically see the same, the same sort of administrative structure uh, set up in other provinces in Canada. Final question. Do you think this money is going to be enough, or do you think uh, there will be greater push for even more just because of the significant growth? Like, like you've said, 120% increase uh, in just three years. Do you think this is going to be will, – will provide enough resources to deal with the demand that's there, or do you think we'll need more? Well, it'll it'll certainly help. I mean, obviously, the the, the big underlying issue is an increased demand here, uh, arising from an increased volume of complaints. So that the more resources that the tribunal has, that's going to help. But um, you know, capacity issues certainly existed uh, long before COVID and, and and before we saw this uptick in volume. So um, it, it will help. But whether or not it's going to be sufficient enough to to address uh, the current delay issues, that that remains to be seen. The other factor too is is we don't know of this four and a half million um, that's being uh, invested in this. How much of that is going to be going to the tribunal specifically? So we'll know in February once the province's budget is released how much is going to go to the tribunal. But um, the jury's certainly still out on as to whether this is going to be enough. Jeff, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Jess. Goodbye now. It's over. That's all. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's This week we asked, should tobacco companies be forced to pay for cleaning up when it comes to cigarette butts and corporate hell? Is it time to declare war 
on meetings. Joining us today is our regular rap panel. Leah Halive is a TV reporter and radio host. And Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey. She's an author and broadcaster. Leah, Sarah, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, guys. Happy New Year. Great to hear your voices. Lots to talk about. Let's talk about a new legislation uh, that was introduced today in Spain. Tobacco companies will now be charged to clean up cigarette butts off the streets and beaches of Spain. Uh, According to new uh, environmental regulations, millions of butts are thrown away each year, of course, which release toxic plastic waste, uh, which can take decades to break down. Uh, Now, figures show from 2020, around a fifth of all adult Spaniards smoke every single day. Uh, Now, a report by the Catalan Foundation estimated that local authorities in Catalonia were paying between uh, about $22 US per inhabitant per year on road cleaning of cigarettes with higher rates in coastal areas. The rules make manufacturers responsible for collecting discarded butts as well as transporting them for waste treatment. So, Leah, let me start with you. What are your thoughts on this? We tax cigarettes... Uh, in a significant man- manner, and, and any smoker would tell you that. What do you think of another tax when it comes to uh, uh, keeping cigarette butts off the streets and beaches and in water? I'm all for that. I am a non-smoker, have been my whole life. My parents will tell you, well, my my mom will tell you now that I always hated cigarette butts. I couldn't touch an ashtray growing up. It grossed me out. I'd almost throw up, and I still to this day feel that way. So I'm all for that. But then I ask this question, though, Jazz. How are they going to enforce this? I mean, do they have people scooping up the butts and analyzing the butts for the markings to know which manufacturer created those cigarettes? And then at the end, they have a like a running tally and then they give them a bill. Like, how, it, it, how are they going to enforce I, I would think it's kind of like uh, a recycling fee that we pay now every time you buy uh, juice or, or you buy any sort of bottle. So every pack. Every pack. And then it's up to okay. you, up to you to return those packs. And I think they've broken it down to even like 20 cents per cigarette. Uh, or uh, wow. uh, So it's, it's broken down that much. Now, is it perfect? Absolutely not. There could be abuse. Uh, but there is more, there are more cigarette butts in the ocean than there is actually plastic. So that's oh, how bad the situation gross. is. Sarah, your, your thoughts on this. I mean, government always has wonderful plans, but it always comes down to implementation. Do you think it'll work? I mean, it's it's hard to say. Okay, obviously in Europe, the way that cigarette smoking is so, so much more of a, smoke, a social thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I remember being on planes where people were smoking. I remember working in the stock market in the 80s when the market crashed and they had just banned smoking in offices and people were going bonkers and they were smoking and they didn't care. Um, now, you know, especially in, in where we are, just seeing somebody like smoking at the beach, for instance, using the Spanish example of cleaning up the cigarette butts at the beach. I mean, I can't remember seeing anybody smoke at the beach for ages. It just seems, it almost seems sort of foreign to see people walking down the street, at least where I tend to be walking around the street, smoking on the street. It just seems so odd. Whereas 25 years ago, you know, it was much more commonplace. So, I mean, we already taxed the, you know, bonkers amounts on cigarettes. I, I, why not add some more? If the money is, in fact, going to be designated to go to cleanup, unlike mm-hmm. here where we have right now, where it's like we get charged 25 cents for a paper bag and it's not that 25 cents is not going to City Hall. It's going to no. the company that's charging you 25 cents for a bag, which is ridiculous. Yeah. If it's not actually going to where it should be going for cleanup, 
then it's just a pointless collection, much like what we're seeing with paper cups and paper bags. Yeah, I was looking yeah. at the numbers. Even Ireland says almost half of the litter in Ireland is cigarette-related. And in Spain, um, it's smoking is still so prevalent. They've had to make beaches yeah. non-smoking. And you do have a good point that you don't really see it on our streets. Although one would argue, I think people have just moved over to vaping to a certain degree. I mean, the numbers have been coming down for smoking. But vaping is another one. I think people have sort of moved on to other things. And you see kids... Uh, being attracted to the that that more and more now compared to compared to compared to smoking. I I, I just uh, in the in New Zealand I was reading they're actually raising the age so it's gonna yeah. it, you're just gonna have to be That's older good. and older. I mean, do you think at this point somewhere along the way, Leah, that it just just come down to the average person saying if I use this product the way it's intended to, I will kill myself or I will shorten my life? Because there's only so much government can do. At the end of the day, it still does come down to personal responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people are going to make choices for themselves, whether they're told is good or bad, right? People are just want to, they don't, we've, we've learned that the last few years, they don't like to be told what to do, right? So I can imagine people are just going to keep smoking and smoking and smoking. But I mean, I am all for people not smoking. It's not good health wise. It's not good for the environment. It's not good for anything. So for me, if we can lower the amount of people smoking, that's great. But will it happen? Probably not. It's going to be like people of like minds, right? Like, I mean, I still, I will admit, you know, because I smoked when I was younger, I will still occasionally have a cigarette if I have a glass of wine. I get a head brush from it. I get get a headache. Oh, yeah. No, I get a headache. I I feel terrible. (laughs) And the funny thing is, if I pass somebody on the street that smells like cigarette smoke, or I am like, it's kind of like, oh, God. You're gagging. I mean, it's that dichotomy, right? But I, I also grew up in an age where it was much more common to smoke. Yeah. But it's, you know, it, it is different now. And so, like, that's the thing is it's more of a, I mean, much like mask wearing became for certain people. It's like people that didn't want to wear masks, they hung out with other people that didn't want to wear masks. And, you know, mm-hmm. that was kind of, and and in general now, I think I, even people that are maybe, you know, regular smokers, I mean, people manage to be able to get on planes and, go to restaurants and do all that kind of stuff. And they make it for that time period without having to like go outside. Right. Well, but even going outside now, of course you can't be within a couple of meters of the front of a building. So, you know, it, it, it it becomes sort of a thing of like it's herd mentality and phasing the behavior out. Next subject uh, also came up in the news this week. Shopify, the Canadian e-commerce company announced this week, it will conduct a calendar purge for 2023. It's requiring staff to scrap reoccurring meetings with more than three people in attendance and meetings of any sort held on Wednesdays are in, are out as well, and and any event with an invite list of over 50 people can only be held Thursdays between 11 and 5 o'clock Eastern time. And what they're basically <laughs> saying, it's what they're basically <laughs> saying, is they want uh, employees to actually get things done and be much more focused. And the representatives from Shopify said that the change gives employees time to actually get work done, a task that can be nearly impossible if they have three or four 30-minute meetings in a morning, which, uh, you know, runs long, and plus you got resumes as well. Leah, let me go to you first and foremost. When I read this, you know, and I I didn't, you know, in journalism, certainly you had some meetings, but you were generally spared sort of the 
uh, corporate challenges, the corporate meetings that uh, the C-suites do. Uh, I, of course, left journalism and then got involved in the corporate world in communications, working for the LNG industry, which are multinational energy companies. Those folks yeah. love meetings. And just when I thought, okay, it can't get any worse, I got into government. Boy, do those folks love <laughs> meetings. Yeah. I, I didn't realize <laughs> meeting on top of a meeting. So your thoughts on all of this? I mean, what do you think of this idea of employers going, you know what, we're going to cut back on this? I, you know, I, I'm interested to see after the two weeks, because they're doing it for two weeks, what their findings are. Like, has more work actually happened? I don't know, because I think some meetings are important, you know, when you're having creative ideas. But when they're just sitting and chit-chatting, yeah, it's definitely not useful. But, I mean, a lot of us work from home, so you kind of have to have some meetings, I think, because it's pertinent to stay in touch with your company. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think after the two weeks, I want to see, did they really – more work getting done or less work. I mean, these meetings, especially on Zoom and Teams, and, you know, it's just like some of them are so long and you're just bored. You're not even paying attention. So really, is that being useful? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just think that I want to see what they find out after the couple of weeks. I definitely like to have less meetings myself. What about you? Uh, for, you know, I always believe that sort of it's comfortable for people in a corporate environment to say, let's have a meeting. And you think you're actually accomplishing something. And I'm not saying you shouldn't you're have them. Uh, Sarah, I mean, you're in the real estate business and you, you also have to have meetings, of course, to do your job. But do you, do, there's got to be times where you kind of just roll your eyes go what am i doing here well i mean we we used to have i actually prefer the in-person meetings that we used to have like a monthly meeting in person mm-hmm. i mean zoom meetings mm-hmm. i don't i talk to my clients on the phone i mean i'm self-employed i mean i i could i'll phone my managing broker if i've got a question about something that i i don't know the answer to but in general i i mean i talk to my clients my clients can call me when they so meetings can happen that's the definition of a meeting i'm i mean i'm literally going to be meeting you know on the phone with a client right after we're finished here because I've got an offer on the table on something. So that I and I don't have to be in person to do those kind of things anymore because we can do digital signatures and stuff. But I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the good thing is when I worked in morning television, I mean, I left before management showed up, so I managed to dodge that bullet all the time. <laughs> nice. That was awesome. I mean, honestly, I used to say things on the air and would laugh about saying things like management's asleep, they're not going to fire me. This is awesome. You know, <laughs> not awake. Yeah. Now, but, you know, but I mean, I I, I, it's been a very long time since I've worked in a business sense where like that I haven't been self-employed where I actually had to have like those kind of group. Everybody has a discussion meeting. Yeah. I, I'd probably lose my mind. Oh yeah. I, yeah. I, we oh. used to have a, um, a, a board meetings every seven weeks. So the head of the natural gas division from Exxon would fly up before the meeting. And then you'd have all these other big energy companies. These were six hour meetings and it would took a week oh to prepare my. for it them. It must have been very dry. Oh, you got to send meetings dry. Oh, you have to send, uh, <laughs> you know, just a, a written material five days before so they can read it. And some, you could tell some folks hadn't read the, read it. It's, it, it's a week to prepare for the meeting. Every six weeks we had to do this. Then, yes, it's important decision. These are billion-dollar projects. But my eyes oh, sometimes would just glaze over. And I go, how is this effective? <laughs> like, that, the, 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 this is a you know, big project. But the CEO, the, the head of the natural gas division, used to fly up from Dallas on a corporate jet, land, have lunch, come to the meeting, and then fly home. And I go, how is this productive? I just didn't, didn't oh, no, get it. Oh, my God. He couldn't so, have been entertaining either. I oh, just can't see it. He, 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 I mean, you know, I loved his <laughs> – he had that East Texas drawl to him. So I always – oh, I mean, nice. said. 
awesome. It was kind of nice to listen to that. Okay, y'all. What are we doing? That was the favorite part of the meeting for me, actually. So that says says a lot. I I have to say, and I know it's it's not true, but when I hear the Southern accent, I'm immediately thinking I'm talking to, like, maybe not the brightest bulb. I I know that's judgment. I know that's judgment. It's just... You know, when I hear this, I, know. I tend to think you might not be the brightest person that there was. But he's flying in a corporate down. jet, and he's running all the natural gas for Exxon yeah, Global. He's, he's making a lot of money, too. He's, he's got something. a lot more money than this little he's got kid. got a lot more money, and, 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 sir. And when he would disagree with me, he'd be like, Jazz, I'm just a simple boy from East Texas. And i go, uh, yeah, you flew exactly. in a corporate jet. You're not that simple. Yeah. Thank he's you. He's in charge of a $100 billion company. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, exactly. yeah. There you go. Ladies, <laughs> thank that. you. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful weekend. You too, guys. You guys too. All right. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.